Good morning, everyone. I want to wish you all a happy Father's Day. And also, I want to, before I comment about fathers, I want to call your attention to just two things real quick. The baptism classes that are coming up, but particularly, Austin mentioned a while back on the back of your um, current, we have some summer opportunities for family ministry. We have a bunch of people signed up for the block party, but the kids clubs in the park on June 27th, July 25th, and August 15th, we need some more people. Now, the idea is for you to get an opportunity to do ministry with your kids. So I think one of the things that I wanted to mention here, number one, is this is a very family-friendly neighborhood. I think some of you are picturing what are there going to be, crack pipes all over and guns and glass and um, my kids are going to go off with a stranger with candy. It's not like that. It's, it's a beautiful park. There's tons of kids, but a lot of cross-cultural experiences. So your kids will be with you, but it's, many of you have had the chance to take your children on a missions trip and to expose them to other cultures and so forth. So we're, we're trying to provide an opportunity, and we can use a number more workers for them. So look online, um, come and talk to us, and pray about the possibility of uh, going down for one or all of them to help minister. It's just a joy to see so many people. I just talked to a young lady this morning who's grown up in our church. She's leaving to be a missionary down in the Dominican Republic. So we're happy to see the Lord working. Now, it's Father's Day, so we want to take a moment to celebrate fathers. I'm a professor, some of you know, at Cairn University, and they actually have an online thing called Rate Your Professor, right? I never look at it. <laughs> what if you had one called Rate Your, rate your Father? Rate Your Father. You're like, well, in what area? You know, well, all areas. Provider. Husband. Relationship. Discipline. Example. How would you rate your dad? Some of you are going, I don't even know my dad. Right? Some of you are going, I wouldn't be appropriate to use the words that... Um, I feel about my dad, and I get that, so it's kind of silly for us to stand up and go, oh, everybody had a great dad, hallelujah, go write dad a, a card and, you know, give him a gift certificate to get some new golf clubs, but it's Father's Day, and so traditionally, the, the idea behind Father's Day is to just take a moment to honor and thank your father. Some of your father's long gone, so you're like, you, some of you miss him, some of you are still bitter at them. So here's what I want us to do for just a moment. First of all, let's just thank the dads that are here. If you're a father, um, would you stand for a moment? We just want to celebrate and, and wish you a happy Father's Day. Now, the easy part is having kids. The hard part is being a father. But I want you to think about something. Jesus, when he was giving an illustration of how good God the Father is, he said, if, if, if you fathers, even though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will your heavenly Father? So, so you're like, Jesus, did you just call us evil? And the reality is, yeah. The Bible teaches we're all broken sinners. So at the end of the day, none of us got it perfect as a father, right? And all of you could find things about your father. You're like, yeah, well... So there's a couple things I want you to process and we're going to pray. Number one, if you're bitter at your father, that's not doing anybody any good. Personally, the Bible says, 
if you let the sun go down on your anger, you're giving Satan a place. So maybe your father was really a bad dad. Maybe he hurt you. I've heard some hideous things. But by you holding on to that resentment, you're allowing Satan to torment you. So this morning, I want to challenge you to forgive your father, not because he deserves it, and that doesn't even mean God forgives him, but because Jesus said, we must forgive others because our heavenly father forgave us. So rather than look at all the things your dad did to you, look at all the sins that we've committed against Christ, and yet he forgave us. And now he says, I want you to forgive others. So for some of you, I want to encourage you today, not because he deserves it, but to but to forgive your father. And then secondly, don't live in this prison of gone, I'm all messed up because of my dad. You don't need to hold on to your treasured disabilities. You see, some people like to go back to that. They're like, well, how do you expect me to ever succeed in anything? I'm messed up. My dad messed me up. It had an influence on you, but you have Christ, and Christ can heal you and change you. So, we're going to forgive our fathers. We're going to thank God for our fathers. We're going to take a moment and just say, Lord, I want to thank you for my dad. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, when our fathers disciplined, they did, they did what seemed best to them. I used to tell my kids all the time, hey, listen, this is the first time I've ever done this. Yeah, I think you're right. I probably got that one wrong. But I'm still your dad. And so we're told to honor our fathers and mothers. So if you haven't done something, and maybe like, yeah, I don't talk to my old man. If you're a Christian... You need to talk to your old man. Now, if he doesn't want to talk to you, the Bible says as much as is possible, be at peace with all men. But let's celebrate our dads. Let's thank God for them. Let's pray for them. If they're still alive, certainly I hope you're going to reach out and minister to them. But also, think about a way you could encourage your dad. You know, what could you do to encourage him? Not just buy him another tie, but what, what could you do to encourage him? What could you do to build him up, to pray for him? Maybe some of you, your dad's not a Christian. Pray for his salvation. But most importantly, if you had a dad who was a pretty good Christian dad, you should be thanking God. You are among the minority, and that's something to be very grateful for. So let's take a moment just to pray together. Father, thank you so much for your design to become our heavenly father, but you gave us earthly fathers. I first... I want to pray for those who are brokenhearted because they never met their dad or were rejected by their dad. Comfort them. As David said, if my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me up. For those who have been wounded by their father, I want to challenge you right now to ask God to help you to make a choice to forgive them. Just right there, say, Lord, I'm hurt, but since you forgave me, I'm going to let go and choose to forgive them. And then take a moment and thank God for your dad. Maybe even think of something special. He took you for ice cream or vacations or he, he fixed your car. Just thank God for something about your dad. And Father, thank you that Christianity is about reconciliation and it's about healing. It's about relationships. So I pray there will be many healthy father-son relationships. Thank you for Father's Day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this morning, if you have your Bible, if you will turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible, we have plenty of extra. Just raise your hand. 
we're in a study of the book of Numbers, and I decided this morning, it's been a while since we kind of stepped back and saw the big picture. It'd be kind of crazy to just walk into a bookstore, open to the middle of a book, and start reading. You'd be like, what is going on here? So let's go back to the beginning and remember where we are in the story. Remember, the story of the book of Numbers really is preceded by the story of God selecting a people, Abraham. And even that's preceded by a bigger story, and that is the grand story of the Bible. My granddaughter loves to read the Bible. She's six years old. She's read like 600 pages of it. It's remarkable. The other day we were talking about Moses, and I said, remember when Moses, no, I said, Moses lifted up his hands to pray, but he got tired and he put them back down. What do you think he should do? And she said, his friend should come along and his brother and hold his arms up. I'm like, wait a minute. I said, you had, did you have that in Sunday school? She goes, no, I read it in the Bible. Most adults don't know that. But I said, it's really important for you to, to remember that all these stories of the Bible, Daniel in the lion's den, they're part of a bigger story. The story of God who created us accountable to him and everything was very good. Creation. But then the, the fall. Life doesn't make any sense unless we understand this worldview that the big story of the Bible is about the fall of Adam and Eve, original sin, and all of its consequences. We live in a fallen, broken, sin-cursed world where people are destined to condemnation. Most of the world is going to hell unless they come back to God. But the good news in the Old Testament is that God had prepared for redemption. He had been planning all along that he would provide a way to overcome the effects of the fall and to provide forgiveness and salvation. And there's a number of ways he did it, but one of the primary ways was when he called Abraham. He decided to choose a Jewish nation. Somebody told me this morning, you got to do both sides. And I'm like, why? And they're like, because the people over there can't see it over here. So I said, that'll take me twice as long. All right, so God calls Abraham. And he says, Abraham, you're going to be a new nation. This was going to be the vehicle nation that was going to be the one through whom Jesus would come and bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And so when God called Abraham, he said to him, you're going to get this promised land, but you're going to have to go down to Egypt. So he comes into the promised land, but then the Jews end up in Egypt for 400 years, and then God raises up Moses and says, all right, we're going to lead them out. But all along, God's pointing us to redemption. The Old Testament story is pointing us to Christ. So we're in the book of Numbers, the story of God's people in their wandering, war, and worship for 40 years. So remember, Moses leads them out across the Red Sea and down to Mount Sinai. And that's where the book of Numbers began. They took a census, over a million people, and they spent two years there preparing to go back to the promised land. And it would have been a, a journey that they could have made in less than a year, but they ended up taking 40 years. So we're now near the end of the book. They're up here about to go back into the land. It's 40 years later and a new generation. So... If you think big picture, the book of Numbers has three sections, and I want you to go back and read the Bible, not so you can go, oh, I want to pass a test, because this is life. The Bible says meditate on God's word, that you're careful to do it. At Mount Sinai, the first generation prepared for the journey. The middle of the book was all the failures where they, they kept disobeying God, and then now we're in the last section. The second generation is preparing to enter the land. But let's just review real quick, because I want you to think back over these stories and, and the, the, how they become examples to us. Remember, the book began when God said, take a census 
of all the men that could go to war. And we were reminded that we're in a spiritual war. But then they did a census of the Levites for worship. And that's where we got the theme that as Christians, we're in, the, in a journey and we're at spiritual war, but God wants us to worship and walk with him. So they purified his people. They consecrated the tabernacle and the Levites. They celebrated the Passover. And then they set out. So that was the first generation. And there were several things we, we talked about, how they, they organized, how they would camp around the tabernacle, where they would stay, and how they would move. Remember, God gave them this system of worship. We're going to be moving through the wilderness, and you're going to come to the, to the tabernacle and offer sacrifices, and we're going to have priests, and I'll guide you by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day, but we're going to go to the promised land. And these priests will continually make atonement for your sin. And when we move, we're going to carry the ark and carry the stuff. So they got ready, the first nine chapters, preparation. But then in the middle of the book, we read of this miserable failure. It's like when people come back, hey, how was your trip? Lousy. How was your journey? Lousy. By the way, do people a favor. If they took their kids to the beach, don't ask them, how was your vacation? Because it's not a vacation. It was a time away with the kids, but it was not a vacation. Taking your kids to the beach is fun, but it's not a vacation. You don't come back relaxed unless you just tell your kids to go to the beach, right? And hopefully they're old enough to watch themselves. Um, so in this middle section, they, they could have done well, but instead God said, listen for the trumpets, and they complain. They're like, we want meat, and God gives them quail, and then he strikes them with a plague, Miriam gets jealous. The spies go out. This is the key chapter. The spies go out, and they don't believe God, and they come back, and they're like, we can't do this. And that's when God goes, that's enough. So that's a pivotal section in the book. God says, this whole generation is going to die. You, you said, God brought us out here to kill our kids, but instead, I'm going to kill all of you, and your kids are now going to enter in the next generation. And as we walked through this midsection, we saw that God set up the Levites, but then Korah, remember, he's like, I don't want to just be one of the, the drone bees. I want to be the chief, Moses. I'm going to challenge you. Remember, the earth swallowed up Korah and the other rebels. And then God, to confirm to them, you need to follow my man. Remember, Aaron's rod budded. And then God gave them some rules for offerings. And remember, we learned about the red heifer, how they needed a red heifer sacrifice to cleanse them and how that pointed us to Christ. And so many of these stories are pointing us to the need for Christ and reminding us that people left to themselves are sinful. They're going to fail. So right now in the book, we're in the, in the last section, and um, I'm going to move past. The, you know, you remember so many of the stories, right? But we're, we're now in the last section. The second generation is preparing to enter. So we're back at the promised land, right at the Jordan River. And we saw that even Moses failed. Moses is so angry with the people that he strikes the rock, and God goes, now you can't enter the promised land. And then they complain again, and God says, I'm going to send serpents to bite you. But then they get the bronze serpent, remember? And Jesus used that as an analogy. He goes, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, I'm going to be lifted up. And so remember, these things are all pointing to Christ. Remember Balaam. We just studied the life of Balaam, this evil prophet who was supposed to curse Israel for money, but he couldn't. Instead, he blessed Israel, and he made great prophecies about Christ. Remember, he said, I see him. A star will rise out of Jacob, and a scepter will come, and he'll be the king. 
But then we learn that Balaam, because he couldn't curse them, he deceived them. He taught the Midianites, ah, bring in your beautiful women and corrupt them with godless women. And so remember, God sent a plague. And Phineas, last time we studied in chapter 5, Phineas came and he stopped that plague. So this morning, Moses is told by God to take a second census. And Joshua was appointed to lead the people. And so we're right here. Moses is going to write the book of Deuteronomy, but he's going to count the people. And it's interesting because down here 40 years earlier, there were over a million of them. Now when they take another census, they've increased by maybe 100 or maybe 1,000, a couple thousand. It's very minimal, but God preserved them even though all those people died. So... You don't generally go, oh, I can't wait to read a census, but we're going to read a census. So I want you to turn with me to chapter 26, because again, see it in the big picture. The Bible's not just a bunch of unrelated stories, but this census is essential, and it's interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one, the first census that Moses took was to gather people for war. This census is because they're about to go into the land, and God says to them, you're going to divide up the land according to how many people are in your tribe. How many kids do you have? You need a bigger house, right? So this one's not a war census. This census is to divide up the land. But what's interesting is that this census shows how some of the tribes increased and some of the tribes decreased. I came from a pretty small family. I'll never forget my my wife invited me out to Johnstown. Pennsylvania, where her family was for a big picnic. And I should have seen this coming. We, she goes, see this road right here? This is my uncle's nine kids. They all have a house on the same road. They all build houses. So I get out of the car, and there's like all these people. And I'm like, who are all these people? She's like, these are my kinfolk. I'm like, you're related to all of them? Like, I never even heard of such a thing, right? Um, and so it was new to me to, to, to be around such a large extended family. So one of the things that's interesting is as you go through this census is to see that a couple of the tribes really increased, but one of them decimated. They went from 59,000, and in 40 years, they were down to 22,000. So we want to take note of why that was. So remember, Balaam had just finished trying to curse them, and now God says, take a census, right? Take a census here. And then we're going to appoint Joshua. So let's start looking at the text. Came about after the plague. Now the plague was the one that God just killed 24,000. And Eliezer or um, Phineas stopped the plague. So God says, take a census of all the congregation from 20 years old and upward. Whoever is able to go out to war in Israel. Now he only says that once in this chapter. In chapter 1... In that census, it says it in like every third verse. It says it like 10 times. The emphasis of this census is not war. It's how many people there are so they can get their land. So Moses and Eliezer took a census by the plains of Moab. Take a census of the people 20 years old and upward. And so it begins to name the 12 sons of Jacob, Reuben. But unlike chapter 1 census, this one then shows some of the descendants some of the further families. But one thing that's interesting, kind of when you're walking through a graveyard, sometimes when you're reading a chapter that's just a list of names, blah, 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 blah. But every once in a while, you'll, you'll stop at a certain grave and they'll go, now let's take a note of this. 
What's interesting in this census is how many times Moses refers to someone who failed, okay? So, so he's gone along, this guy, this guy, then he goes, these are Dathan and Abiram who were called by the congregation who contended against Moses and against Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord. In other words, these are the guys who got swallowed up by the earth. Note to self, to rebel against God and his people, not a good idea. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them. However, he says the sons of Korah did not die. Now, this was new to me because when I read number 16, it looks like the earth swallowed Datham, Abiram, Korah, and all of his sons. But actually, not the case. Some of the sons of Korah did not die. Apparently, they said, Dad, you're wrong, and I'm not going to stand with you. And Moses said, get away from around their tent. And some of these sons of Korah got away from their own dad, turned their back on their dad because he was evil, right? And sometimes to follow, a, follow the Lord, you have to turn your back on your family. You're like, that sounds mean. Well, it might sound mean, but Christ said, if you're going to follow me, I didn't come to bring peace. A lot of people won't follow Christ because they're like, well, my dad would be upset because that's not the religion we were raised in. But the interesting thing is, if you read the Bible much, you've heard of the sons of Korah. When you read the Psalms, the sons of Korah wrote a bunch of the Psalms. So later descendants of of Korah became very godly men, which is really interesting because some of you might go, yeah, well, my dad's in prison, right? You don't have to be defined by where you came from or the failures of somebody in your registry. You can be defined by your willingness to follow the Lord. And so it goes on, and it mentions many of the different tribes. But notice here the Simeonites. At the beginning of the journey, they had 59,000. By far, these people are ruined. Like, what is going on? Well, no one knows for sure why they were so decimated. But two things. One, the Simeonites were associated with with Korah's rebellion, but more importantly, Zimri was a Simeonite. Zimri, the guy who boldly brought his godless wife in front of the weeping congregation whom Phineas had put to death. And so it's been suggested that part of the Simeonites' decimation was because of some of the sins of their fathers. And I want you to think about that, all of us, that when you turn your back on God, when you disobey God, It doesn't always just affect you. The Bible says God visits the sins of the fathers on the third and fourth generation. And so there are times that I have to go, man, I shouldn't do this not just for me, but for the sake of my family, for the sake of the disgrace and pain and trouble that I might cause my family later. But don't live under that curse. I'm messed up because of my dad. Ask God to free you from that and to begin to raise a godly generation. Well, he goes on and mentions many of these people who failed, Aaron Onan, they failed in the book of Genesis. Sons of Judah, Judah increased. Sons of Issachar. So I'm not going to read through all these. We're going to speed read. I'm only going to point out some of the interesting kind of side notes. Manasseh, 
you can actually go in your study Bible and see a chart of the, of the tribes that increase, the tribes that decrease. But as we get near the end of the chapter, it mentions a couple interesting things. Keep going here. It came to the Levites and said, among these the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names. So at this point, God's beginning to say, look, here's how it's going to work. When you go in the land, biggest tribe gets the most land. But there was two things. You wanted a lot of land, but you also wanted a good location. Would you rather have five acres of land in Tullytown by the dump or one acre in Wrightstown by the farm? So it wasn't just how big was your tribe, but then where are you going to get? Am I going to get mountain view, lake view, river view, arid, dry, fruitful hills? So the way they decided the land was they would divide it by lot. And so they left it up to God's providence. It was like drawing straws. Like, okay, reach in the hat, and whatever you pick out, that's what God gave you. And actually, that's how they did things in the Old Testament. And the Bible actually affirms that in the book of Proverbs. It says the answer of the lot is from the Lord. And there are some churches that will still do this when they choose a pastor, if they have two qualified men. They'll take two Bibles. They'll put a card in one of them of which they won't let these men see which one has the card in it. And then they pray. And they say, God, show us which one of these two should be our pastor. And then they tell these two men, reach out and pick up one of those Bibles. And whichever one has the card in it, then we believe that's God's way of directing us to who he wills. And so some people probably weren't happy. Ah, I don't like it. But it was a way of saying, hey, there's no politics here. We left it up to the Lord. So as the chapter ends, it's a reminder, Nadab and Abihu, remember they died before the Lord, but God's going to wind it up by saying, listen, remember this. Among those, there was not a man who, those who were numbered by Moses in the wilderness of Sinai because the Lord had said to them, they shall surely die in the wilderness. And so God goes, look, I keep my word. I told you not a single man would live except Caleb and Joshua and enter into the land. So the chapter ends with a census, right? But then we move into chapter 27, and there's an exception. These ladies, the daughters of Zelophad, they come to Moses, and they say, we've got a problem here. He's got five daughters. Normally, in a patrilineal society, the land goes to the father, to the son, to the son, and so forth. But what if he didn't have sons? And these five godly daughters whose dad died, they said, wait a minute, that's not fair. Our dad's going to not be remembered. He's not going to get any land because we don't have any brothers. So they, so they, they noticed their, their posture. They, they humbly come to Moses. They didn't go, we have our rights and we're going to ride and we're going to burn things down until you fix this. But they humbly came to Moses. In verse 3, they said, our father died in the wilderness. Yet, our dad wasn't a terrible guy. He wasn't among the company of those who gathered against the Lord. He wasn't an outright rebel. But don't miss this phrase, but he died in his own sin. What's that mean? He died in his own sin. 
Well, it could mean a number of things. It could just mean simply theologically we all die because of sin. That's why we die. God didn't create us to die. The Bible says through, through Adam, death came through sin. But it could be an implicit reference to the fact that our dad was there when the 12 spies came. And when the 12 spies spoke up, 10 of them said, we can't go in. But Joshua and Caleb said, yes, we can. Now, who, who believes me? Who trusts God's promise? Follow me and we'll go in. Well, obviously, their dad wasn't one of them, right? He, among the whole rest of the generation, refused to trust God. And so he died in his own sin. But that doesn't mean he was a terrible man, and they want his memory to continue. Why should the name of our father be withdrawn? So they bring the case to Moses. Moses seeks the Lord. He says, what should I do? And eventually the Lord says, hey, listen, they're right. It's, it's only fair to give the, the, the land to the daughters, that, that it would stay within that family. So now, remember, Miriam has died. Moses' brother Aaron has died, and now God says, hey, um, Moses, we need to talk about your death. The Lord said to Moses, go up to this mountain and see the land which I've given to the sons of Israel. And, and remember, God had already told Moses, you're not going in the land. You're going to see it, but you're not going in. When we read Deuteronomy 3, he tried to plead with God, come on, God, and God goes, it's enough. You're not going in. So God says, when you have seen it, you will be gathered to your people because during your strife, you rebelled against my command to treat me as holy. And it's just a reminder, consequences. We reap what we sow. You can't go back and undo your past, but think before you do things. Pray to God for wisdom and caution. Listen to counsel. Ask God to help you not to sacrifice what's permanent on the altar of some impetuous or angry or lustful decision. But now that Moses knows he's going to die, he says, all right, may the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. Now, that's really interesting. Why didn't you say, hey, God, who's going to follow me? He says, the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh. The only other place he said that was back in chapter 16. Why does he say that? I was talking to my little granddaughter about this the other day. We got two parts, an outer man and an inner man. But your inner man is your spirit. That's what defines you. That's who you really are. That's your character. That's your personality. And God searches the hearts of all men, and he cares about what's going on on the inside. He's the God of the spirits of all flesh. And so God knows us. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our secrets. He knows whether our heart is for him, whether we're lukewarm, whether we're surrendered to him, whether we truly believe, whether we're playing games. And so Moses says, God, would you please appoint a man over the congregation? Now, this is remarkable. It's like George Washington. George Washington was the first world dictator to conquer the world power and not say, now my son's going to be the boss man. And the humility of Moses, instead of saying, God, put my, I'm going to pick who's going to be the leader. He prays, he says, God, pick someone who will go out and in before them, who will lead them. God, your people need leaders so that they will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. 
You thought Jesus came up with that. He did, but a long time ago. And one of the principles that runs throughout the Bible is that God's people need leaders. Not bosses, not power-hungry egomaniacs, but godly shepherds to pray over them, to correct them, to provide an example for them. And the Bible says in the New Testament, if you're a Christian, obey your leaders and submit to them because they keep watch over your souls as those who must give an account. And frequently churches go no further than their leaders. And so I want to urge you to pray for us. Pray for us as pastors. Pray for the elders. Pray that God will help us to shepherd people. And you may not always agree with your leaders, but please, let us do this with joy. Pray for us. Come and talk to us. There's always Satan trying to to, to cause division in the flock, and it's a privilege to be a leader. So when God said, take Joshua, he knew Joshua's spirit. The Holy Spirit is in him. And he said, you're going to lay your authority on him, some of it, and he's going to take over. Now, here's why. Think about Joshua. Number one, Joshua is such a humble guy. The Bible says all through the Old Testament, he was the servant of Moses. For 40 years, he was just Moses' errand boy going to the cleaners and getting Moses' clothes. He was a man of courage. When it was time to fight the Amalekites, Moses prayed, and Joshua went down and fought them. Joshua was a man of faith. See, leaders are men of courage and humility and faith. Joshua was one of the ones going, no, we can take that land when everyone else says, shut up before we kill you. We can't take that land. And so my challenge is to say to you folks, how would you like to be a leader? Churches need leaders. Churches grow under leaders. Did you know that to be a leader, especially a spiritual leader, is something that you could want to do? People frequently say to me, Pastor Tom, how do I know if I'm called to be a spiritual leader? I go, well, let me ask you a question. Do you want to? They're like, well, where'd you get that from? 1 Timothy 3 says this. If any man desires... To be an elder or an overseer. That's a fine work he desires. So start with this question. Do you desire to be a spiritual leader? For some of you, you'd be like, I'd rather have my eyes poked out. Well, why? Why would you not want to be a spiritual leader? But then secondly, if you do want to be a spiritual leader, why? You're like, boy, I'd like to be up there on the stage, you know, everybody eating out of my hand. If, if you want to be a leader just to have people under you, get a job in a graveyard. It's just, it's, just, it's just way simpler. But I want to encourage, especially you men, as our church is growing, we need more elders. And ladies, we need more godly leaders. And you don't become a leader by accident. In 1 Timothy 3, it says, if any man desires to be a leader, that's a fine work. Now, here's what you work on. Above reproach, patient, gentle, not selfish, not doing it for money, managing your household. And so I want to encourage you to pray for your leaders, but pray about your own self and say, God, might you be calling me to be a leader? And if so, it's not about your ability, it's about your availability and your character and your willingness to say, hey, I want to learn, I want to serve, 
You don't start out as the boss man. You serve, you learn. You get training and, and you step in. And I'm thankful we have a lot of fine leaders in this church. Pray for your leaders. And as we close now, there's a couple of things I want us to think about. We frequently say, hey, what did you read about today? Ah, we read about a census. Some ladies wanted some land. And then the importance of Joshua as a leader. So let me come to a couple applications as we close. Number one, remember this as we've reviewed the book. We're still at a war. Like, it's important to remember that we are at a war. We're not at peace. There's no truce. There's a real devil. There are real demons. And this world is headed to hell. And Satan is prowling about looking to destroy your personal life and your family. He's looking to make you miserable. If you're not a Christian, he's looking to drag you to hell with him because you won't respond to Christ. So, if I know I'm at war, I've got to be cautious. I've got to take up the arm of God. I've got to be a man of prayer, not a pansy who goes, ooh, you know, oh. We, we, we stand in the Lord and we say, God, I'm hurting, but I need your strength. I want to fight against Satan. I want to take up the armor. I want to, I want to stay in your word. Yeah, I'm tired. Yeah, I'm discouraged. And I need other people to come along and help me when I am beaten down. So remember, we're at a war. Being a parent, being a husband, being a wife, it's hard work. Doing what's right. Going to work every day and not complaining. Being a witness to the clowns you work with. That's war. But keep your eyes of faith on your future inheritance. We're not here to stockpile stuff. The name of the game is not like, enjoy your life, get all you can. You only go around once. We're here to serve Christ. And only what's done for Christ will last. And our real investment is in the, in the future. And so if your job is dragging you down and that's all you do is work and you've got no time for God, right? And you're like, well, that's the only way we can afford to have these three houses. Well, at the end of your life, you're not going to be asking to see your portfolio. And when you stand before Christ, he's not going to be impressed with how much you, you worked to make money. It's what we do for Christ. And so our reward is in the life to come. Third, remember that they, they, they didn't take 40 years off of worship. How can you worship when you're in this stinking wilderness? You learn to worship in the wilderness. The Bible says in everything we give thanks. As Benjamin mentioned, some of you have tears, and I understand that. It's hurting people. You're disillusioned with God. You're hurt by your family. But if you have Christ, you could still worship. You could still give thanks. You can still bless the Lord and forget none of his benefits. You can still pray. You could still read your Bible. Fourth, you can ask the Lord for your tribe to increase. What do I mean by that? Some of you can't have kids, but maybe your tribe is, is your Bible study group, the people that you're leading to Christ. Think of our church as just one little tribe among the, the grand ch church all over the world that Christ is building from men and women from every tribe and tongue. Pray that our church increases with people who are coming to Christ, repenting and believing and being saved. Pray for the Lord to give your family health and godliness. I'll tell you to pray for lots of kids and grandkids, godly kids and grandkids. David prayed for his children, Lord, incline their hearts to your word. Pray for your little kids Dear God, make them great in the sight of the Lord like John the Baptist. Lord, raise up laborers. Pray for their marriages. Pray for what they can be for Christ. 
And then finally, remember that leadership matters. That God's work is usually done through people who surrender to him and say, Lord, I'm willing. I don't, ha- I don't have what it takes. There's better men than me. There's better women than me. But I'm willing to be a leader for Christ. I'm willing to step out and serve you. Maybe God's tugging at your heart today to consider what that might look like. As we close this morning, I want to do something. I only do this very rarely, but once in a while, I like to give an invitation. And let me explain what we're going to do here. We're going to, we're going to actually look at a song called Just As I Am. Our, our mission statement is to advance the gospel by making disciples. Okay, a disciple is a person who's a forgiven follower of Christ. Some of you have been coming to church for a while. You're like, yeah, well, you know, I, I'm thinking this through. A disciple is someone who makes a decision. You don't become a Christian by osmosis. You can't go to the zoo to become a monkey. You don't become a Christian by coming to church. You become a Christian when you go, I get it. Jesus Christ died for me. I'm a sinner. I'm willing to turn from my sins and trust in him and follow him. Now, what does it mean to be a disciple? The first step of being a disciple is the Bible says you should make that public. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. You're not an undercover witness ashamed of Jesus. You stand before the body and you go, I am a follower. I've decided to follow Christ. And so from time to time, I'll give opportunity to do that. If you've never publicly said, yeah, I'm in. I'm on the Lord's side. I want to ask you to come and stand with me as we sing this song. It was a beautiful thing. There were four people came in the first service. One young man, he said, I've, I've chosen to follow Christ. I just never, never made it public. Tears and faith and just, it's a joy. If no one comes, I'm not going to go home and cry. And I'm not going to twist your arm and say, we're not leaving until someone comes forward. It's an opportunity. We're making disciples. And God will tug at your heart. And you'll go, you know what? Why wouldn't I want to come stand and say, I believe in the Lord. I'm a forgiven follower of Christ. Maybe some of you have been fighting against it. Who are you fighting? You're going to put it off? I read in the paper this week, a kid died playing Russian roulette. You know what that is? Where you got one bullet, you spin around, you go, ah, oh, it's probably not going to shoot me. Maybe you're playing Russian roulette with your soul. You're like, yeah, maybe someday I'll get saved. There's a lot of people in hell who waited for that someday. One of Jesus' favorite words was, come, come to me. 